listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Today, I'd like to talk about three desperate needs in the church of America. True worship, fasting, and prayer. True worship, fasting, and prayer. Now, because I know that it's easy to begin to think about what needs to happen out there, I want to bring this down a little bit so that we get a a bird's eye view of what we're going to be looking at. This is not just something that needs to happen in America. America is the outgrowth of your life and my life and countless other people's lives and families and this church and many other churches. That's what America is. And so this is three great needs that need to happen, not just in the church in America, but these are three great needs that need to happen. They need to be a reality in your life. Real worship, fasting, and prayer. Now, before we get to Acts chapter 13, I want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 to help us understand a bit of what the world will be like at the latter part of the last days. I don't know if you realize this, but the last days began as is recorded in Acts chapter 2, when the apostle Peter gives his message and quotes from Joel chapter 2, the Old Testament book, Joel. And that prophecy that he quotes from is about the last days. In the last days, these things will happen. And Peter says this on the day of Pentecost is that which was spoken of many years ago by the prophet Joel. So the last days actually began on the day of Pentecost and we've been living in the last days ever since. But as the return of Jesus gets closer and closer, There's also this teaching within the Bible of being in the latter part of the last days. And that's what 2 Timothy chapter 3 speaks about. What will the world be characterized like in the latter part of the last days? Well, here it is. 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. But understand this. Pay attention. Have insight. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And then Paul lists 19 specific traits of what difficult times will look like. Here they are. Verse two. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, Slanderous, the word that's used there comes from the word diabolos or diabolical. Without self-control, brutal, not loving, good. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, it's very easy as someone who is in the church, if you've been in the church for any length of time, to think that this is a reference to the way people will be behaving in the world, 
people who are not part of the church. But I want to challenge that thinking because people in the world are not concerned at all with even having an appearance of godliness. The only place where that would happen would be among people who are religious people. See, the church does not exist to create people who are simply polite. That's not the mission of the church, to make people polite. Even though we've met people who are polite who are part of church and people who are very impolite are part of church. The church exists to facilitate the movement of the Spirit of God to point people to Jesus in the overflow of our personal and together encounters with Jesus. It's very easy with the passage of time to settle for politeness rather than the filling with the Holy Spirit. They are not the same thing. You can meet some very polite people who are not Christians, moralists, atheists, agnostics, and you can meet some people who are Christians who are supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet they're not only impolite, but lacking the filling with the Holy Spirit. You have to be very careful in your individual life. We have to be careful in our families. And we have to be careful in the body of Christ in our churches that we don't settle for something far less than what God intends. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, if we're not careful, you will settle for having a form of godliness without the power of God. Do you understand what God is trying to say to you and to me, to us, through what's already been said? You could go through your life, you could spend another day settling for something far less than what God has in mind for you. A form of godliness is never something that we should settle for. You should never be content with just looking godly. If you're following Jesus Christ, you should be concerned about becoming more like Jesus in character, and that is godliness. It's not looking godly, it is actually becoming more and more godly. The warning for people within the church who are followers of Jesus, the warning back then when Paul wrote this, which is still pertinent, it's still applicable for us today, is that we who are part of the church need to be vigilant, need to be mindful and aware of the propensity to settle for far less than what God has in store for us. It is not a form of godliness. It is the power of God. So I want to ask this question. Have you settled for far less than what God has in store for you? Have you settled for going through the day in and the day out, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, focusing on being a more polite person when you should be concerned about becoming a more powerful Christian? Amen. We need another revolution in the United States of America, a revolution of humility and courage, humble courage. This is what's going to overcome the arrogance and the fear that we're seeing in our nation. Yes. And the only way for humble courage 
to become a revolution at a grassroots level among God's people is for God's people to shake off settling for far less, a form of godliness, and to embrace and to discover and to, in many instances, rediscover the power of Almighty God, courtesy of the Holy Spirit. We are commanded in Scripture. Look what Paul says in verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. And so what we want to do is we want to look at where in the Bible can we turn to get an understanding of what a church that is being led by the Holy Spirit looks like. What are the consequences when men and women, when God's people are committed to genuine worship, fasting, and prayer? There are always consequences when God's people become on fire for the Jesus that they profess and confess. There are always consequences practically, not only in the life to come, but in this life here and now. So turn with me to Acts chapter 13 in our Father's Word as we continue in our series through the book of Acts and we look at a very potent passage of Scripture that is still pertinent, still practical, still applicable for us today. In fact... It's so practical and so applicable and so pertinent, even though I'm going to read through verse 12, we're going to spend the remaining time that we have together on the first three verses. Because we need a humble revolution in the United States of America, and that change needs to begin in God's house, not the White House. I was on Facebook just yesterday, Somebody had commented about the National Week of Repentance, and they said, maybe this should begin by the president putting out an appeal for forgiveness. Maybe that's the way it should start off. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, asking for forgiveness is not the same as repentance. And how dare we abdicate, surrender, the moral and spiritual obligation that God has given to us within the church to a politician. We cannot put a political band-aid on a spiritual problem. We don't need this president of the United States or any future president of the United States or the Senate or the House of Representatives to declare a national need for repentance. Repentance has been given to us as the church within the body of Christ. And that movement of God needs to begin with you. When you look at that person in the mirror staring back at you, you are ground zero in the movement of God that needs to happen in this nation. It begins with you and it begins with me. We need to stop giving up the call of God to somebody else. Life is happening. This is not a time to sit on the sidelines and watch other people run the ball down the field. Get into God's game. He's calling you and he's calling me off the bench to a lifestyle, to lifestyles characterized by real, true worship, by fasting and by prayer. And this is why verse one, verse two, 
verse three of Acts chapter 13 is so significant. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. In the Latin, that means black. And by the way, he's not a friend of Johnny Cash. That's not a reference to his clothing. It's most likely a reference to his skin color, okay? Lucius of Cyrene, northeast Libya, about 13 miles from the coast of Libya, northern Africa, another individual who's probably not light-skinned. Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, a person of influence, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, quote, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them, end quote. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, to the Jew first, and then also the Gentiles. So it begins there. And they had John, or John Mark, another key player that we're going to hear about more later on, to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. What we're seeing here is the confirmation that it really was the Holy Spirit that spoke to the believers and told them, set apart Barnabas and Saul for this work. But Elamis, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice it says the teaching of the Lord even though the vessel of that teaching is Paul who becomes the super apostle Paul who writes a majority of the books in the New Testament. Now, Paul understood a thing or two about blindness. Remember that whole story when he was in Damascus, on, on his way to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him, and he was blind? So Paul understood a thing or two about that. Paul also, look at how he responds when he's filled with the Holy Spirit. There are definitely times when an individual is filled with the Holy Spirit and you have to say difficult things to people who need to hear them. This idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit and being milk toast is not scriptural at all. When an individual is filled with the Holy Spirit, you become concerned about sin, beginning with your own. You become concerned about sin in your family. It is a sin issue if your family is so divided that there are televisions in every room that there are smart devices in every hand, that the communication is suffering, that you don't have meals together, that's not because everybody's simply busy, brothers and sisters. That's because everybody is distracted over the main thing. 
God created the family first. It is the first institution that he created. It should be no surprise to us that the world and the devil and the flesh is continually bent on destroying the family, destroying the fellowship and destroying the unity. So if your family is divided, if any of those things I said strike a chord, if you're like two ships passing in the night that you barely see each other, that's not just because you're busy, it's because you have your priorities out of whack and you need to repent of that. You need to, as the person and the people who are head of the family, the mother and the father, you need to have a sit-down family meeting and you need to say, this is sin, it needs to stop, we need to come together because we are not achieving the objective of fellowship, relationship together in the family. And we wonder why the nation is so divided and distracted. Get rid of all the different televisions, get rid of the internet access 24-7, get rid of the smartphones, they don't need to be dumbing us down the way they are, and spend time together as a family. Spend real, meaningful time together as a family. Repentance is not simply asking for forgiveness, it's changing the way you're living your life so that you don't have to continually ask for forgiveness. It's a change in behavior. So there we go. What change in your family life do you need to make today? What changes need to take place in your family this week? Why put off till tomorrow what you can do today? Many of us who have children who are emancipated, they're out of the house now. We have regrets over not spending time as a family the way we should have. What if, should have, could have. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. It's a great day to take back and to redeem what you've abdicated, what you've given up for whatever distraction and diversion there might be. But here what we see in Acts chapter 13 is the family of God acting like a family operating in the power of God and God blessing and moving in power. First and foremost, it's a melting pot. Once again, as we're seeing again and again in the book of Acts. We saw this transition in Acts chapter 10 and 11 and 12. We're seeing it again in 13, that it's a melting pot. Verse one, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. They seem to be used interchangeably here. This is before the Bible was finished. We didn't have the New Testament writings yet. And so the word of God was passed on through verbal teaching, verbal oral tradition and hymns and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Especially, we have teachers today. I mean, what's happening right now? I hope you're learning a thing or two. But the prophets and the teachers were preeminent then and there in the church of Antioch. Notice it doesn't say in every local church, but in particular at Antioch, they had a special concentration of prophets and teachers, those who were able to make statements about the future. It does mean it in that regard. It's not just foretelling the word of God, it's also foretelling what to do. And some of us in conservative circles, we get bent out of shape and we see that. Ooh, we go into damage control, what we call damage control. Listen, you don't need to control what God doesn't want controlled. You don't need to put out a public relations statement 
to sanitize or to tidy up the word of God and to explain it away to the point where it's irrelevant. We've done a lot of that in the body of Christ. We've done a lot of, well, that was then and this is now. Well, what does that mean, Pastor Mike? What does that mean? Are we supposed to open the floodgates to alleged prophetic words? Notice what I said, alleged prophetic words. If you believe that God says this, or if somebody comes up to you and says, God told me to tell you this, and you believe it instantaneously, I need to see you in my office immediately. (laughs) There's this thing that we see again and again in the Bible, and you see it here, keeping in mind that Acts chapter 13 was written after the events occurred. There's this thing called confirmation. You don't launch into new territory because you believe God is telling you to do it until and unless you have confirmation. By the time Luke wrote Acts chapter 13, there was already confirmation that Barnabas and Saul were indeed sent out by the Holy Spirit, that it was indeed the Holy Spirit who said, as it's recorded here, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I had called them. This is not being dictated as the events are taking place. This was written in hindsight. There was confirmation. And we just looked at some of the confirmation right here with what happened with the proconsul and with Bar-Jesus and Barnabas and Saul. And in fact, we have the remainder of the book of Acts with the ministry of Paul, the apostle. What we're seeing here is the record of how Paul was commissioned to be involved in ministry. But what I want you to understand is a few things here. Number one, it's a melting pot. The body of Christ is the melting pot of people of diverse backgrounds, diverse ethnicities, all saved as members of the human race through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There was a one-for-one sacrifice. One died for all. That's why Jesus had to come in the flesh as a man born of a virgin wasn't just a man, even though he was fully a man. He was also fully God without sin. Otherwise, you could have paid the price for yourself somehow. So the statement of Jesus on the cross and in the tomb is that there had to be a real sacrifice in your place, a real payment for the penalty that you deserve and that I deserve. And that penalty is death. The Bible says for the wage or the price of sin is death. Since you're not sinless and I'm not sinless, we were in big trouble. Because you can't clean a dirty table with a filthy rag. Jesus was fully man, a human being, to be a one-for-one sacrifice for you. And fully God, because a mere human being would have had a sin problem. So God made the one who was without sin, Jesus, take on your sin so that you could have what you do not have naturally, the righteousness of Almighty God. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And what we have here is people of different ethnicities, all saved through the same blood, the blood of Jesus. And so when we look at the racism that we see in our nation, coming from black people, or the racism that we see in our nation coming from white people, 
And the wafer fair people and the yellow people and the red people and people of all different ethnicities, when we see the racism or when we recognize it in and of ourselves, all of that is a reminder that we have spiritual amnesia. We have forgotten that one died for all and that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. We've all received grace. Each of us receives grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and wholeness the moment we give our life to Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? Of course it is. That's the gospel. That's the great news of the gospel of Jesus. And so what Luke is doing here is helping us understand this melting pot about how all people are equal at the foot of the cross. Now, what I want to get back to also here is this idea of God speaking to us. God speaking to us and how God speaks to us and what the church really is. What is the church? Well, the church, first and foremost, is a movement of God. It is a movement of God, not a business entity. There are business components in a church. There have to be. You have a budget, you have salaries, you have things that are required at the federal level, things that are required at a state level. But if a church operates only with an eye toward legal regulations and IRS standards, things of that sort, the church is settling for far less than the reason why she was created. Everything in a church, certainly in this church, if you're listening by podcast or radio, I hope in your church, everything in a church should be structured to accommodate the unhindered movement of the Holy Spirit. Everything. So the business decisions that are made have to be made with this question, will this facilitate the unhindered movement of God? The staffing decisions have to be made, will this facilitate the unhindered movement of God? the way that the ministries are structured and what types of ministries are created and the ones that you put energy and time into, they exist to facilitate the unhindered movement of God. Very, very important to understand that because what we see here is not a board of businessmen. We see a band of brothers. And I understand, all right? I'm a bit entrepreneurial. I do have a nonprofit organization I've worked in management, worked along vice presidents before, okay? I'm not saying this disrespectfully. I'm saying it as a matter of prioritization. A nonprofit 501c3 organization, you might say, what in the world is that? A church is a 501c3, you know, a charitable organization recognized by the IRS. You have to, according to federal law, have a board of directors with a treasurer, and a secretary, and a chairman. That fulfills what the IRS requires, what the federal government requires, all right? But once we take care of that and we honor the government the way we should, provided the government doesn't hinder the movement of God, we need to get on with what we really need to be about, which is to be a movement of the Spirit of God. And what we see here in the book of Acts is a band of brothers, not primarily a board of businessmen. In fact, that adjective that is often used, the church board, the board of elders, if that terminology was helpful for the movement of God, I think it might have been used in the Bible somewhere. That is an unnecessary, unhelpful, in fact, often, I say this respectfully, 
hurtful adjective. Because what happens is, oftentimes churches end up, their leadership ends up being reduced to simply a group of decisions, one decision after another, one financial decision after another, one strategic decision after another. And the decisions are not coming forth the way they're coming forth here in Acts chapter 13 while they were really worshiping, while they were fasting from their smartphones, not having a meal, dedicating themselves to prayer. While they were doing that, this is not happening in a boardroom strategy meeting. This is happening most likely while they're on their knees, while they're on their faces, while their hands are lifted up. While they were worshiping and fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. While the band of brothers is drawing near to Almighty God, God draws near to them and says, I want you to set apart two individuals for a particular work, and it's Barnabas and Saul. And what happens? Look at verse three. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They understood that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is to be a group of people who are intimate with God so that the ministries of God come in the overflow. We need to understand this in the church in the United States, and let me land the plane here. We need to understand this at Grace Fellowship. We need to understand that in this church. The ministries need to come out of seeking God genuinely. Real worship, fasting, and prayer. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Listen. God doesn't just plant churches so that people can gather together and worship. He plants churches so that people can go out and evangelize. Very important to understand. So in your life group, many churches, maybe you're listening on the radio or podcast, okay, you're listening right now. In your life group, the purpose of a life group is not to simply cram more Bible knowledge into our heads. You need to be inviting people who don't know Jesus as their savior into your life group. The church should be a big, beautiful mess. A big, beautiful melting pot, a movement of God where you are reaching out to people with other people. People are getting saved in your life group. They're getting saved at the workplace. They're getting saved at yard sales. And they're getting saved together when we gather on a Sunday morning. The church is a big, beautiful mess, a melting pot, because when the Spirit of God moves, God's people have to move with him. You know, every instance that we have seen so far in the book of Acts, which is a book of examples, not primarily exceptions, we see God moving and then God's people having to catch up with God moving. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. It's good to get together and worship, but you need to go out in evangelism. You might say to yourself, well, I want to be with a group of people where we don't have to deal with, deal with what? Deal with people who don't know Jesus? See how it's so easy to take the main thing and not make it the main thing anymore? I don't want to be distracted, distracted. 
To have to talk with somebody who doesn't know much about Jesus, that's the most beautiful opportunity we have. In fact, turn with me to the book of Philemon, the sixth verse. Philemon verse six says this, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Do you know that as you evangelize, as you share your faith, you actually get built up? You actually come to understand more of what you have in Jesus Christ? So when you withhold sharing your faith to somebody who doesn't have saving faith, you're actually robbing yourself of coming to a fuller knowledge of what you have in Jesus. So your home group, your life group, those are environments where we are deliberately to be reaching out to others and sharing the gospel of Jesus by inviting them. It's a beautiful thing if somebody shows up at your life group and doesn't know Jesus as their savior and you or somebody else invited them. You don't think that God is at work in their life? They did not come to get a coffee and a donut unless you're serving coffee and donuts. They came because you invited them to meet with other people and to learn about God. The church initially was birthed right there in Solomon's colonnade for all to see, for all to partake. God wanted everybody to see this big, beautiful mess of people from all different ethnicities, all who have their sins forgiven, washed away by one person the Savior, the God, the Master, Jesus. And it's good for us to take that as an example. You've got to remember that your life exists so that you can worship God, walk closely with him, and lead people to Jesus in the overflow. Jesus doesn't start churches just so the people can gather to worship. He starts churches so that the people can go out and evangelize. And that evangelism, that burden for the lost, that concern for the lost, I started preaching as a result of a prayer meeting. I did, with one other brother, and then it became two other brothers. I started preaching because of a prayer time. I know it's counterintuitive because we so rarely do it. But the things that God births come from the heart of God. And in order to get the heart of God, you've got to spend time with God. And that's where real worship, true worship, and fasting and prayer play such a significant role. It's not a coincidence. It's a reminder. You want God to move in your life? You want God to move in your family? You want God to move in this family, the church of God, the body of Christ? And draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I'll never forget when I was called, literally, to accept my first pastorate many years ago. And I was in the front row. They used pews in this church. And I was there to be a guest speaker. And I was worshiping the Lord. It was during one of the songs. I was worshiping the Lord. And I heard the Lord say to me, I want you to be pastor of this church. I remember having a debate. I remember where I was in that church. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I'm not going to do that because you called me to do this. I was going to travel, speak, preach. How ironic, right? He just spoke to me, and I'm telling him that he's wrong. So there's hope for you. See how thick-headed I am? There's hope for you. There's hope for you. 
Three weeks later, I was back at that same church, made the mistake of standing in the same spot, was worshiping the Lord with these same people. And the Lord said to me, these people are going to ask you to be the pastor of the church and you're going to say yes. Okay, Lord. After that church service, guy comes up to me and said, you know, we need a pastor. Want to know if you would consider being the pastor of this church. Confirmation. And so I prayed about it. Didn't tell them what had just happened to me while I was worshiping the Lord with them and became the fifth pastor in eight years at that church. If I had known what was involved, that's a high turnover, I would have said no. And you have to be careful in your life that you don't put parameters on what you will and will not do for God because you have TMI, too much information. God does not call you to a lifestyle of comfort and convenience. He calls you to be part of his movement, to change the world one person, one relationship at a time. If we knew what was on the horizon in our lives, what was coming down the road, we would often tell God, no. There ain't no way, not gonna do it, wouldn't be prudent. In the wisdom of God, he intentionally withholds from us things that would keep us from saying yes. You would get into a good practice in your life to say yes to God before you even know what he's asking you. That's what surrender is. To say yes to God before you even know what he's asking you. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. In fact, it could be very difficult. We're living in a very dark this tasteful world and it's getting darker and more and more tasteless. Serving the Lord in the last days as we looked at from 2 Timothy chapter three is going to become an increasingly daunting, difficult task as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus. You have to be a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. You have to be a woman who is filled with the Holy Spirit. You have to be a boy or a girl who's filled with the Holy Spirit because otherwise you could settle for a form of godliness without walking in the power of God. And one of the ways that the power of God is manifest is when people wholeheartedly dedicate themselves to real worship, which is surrender. And fasting, abstaining from food, abstaining from an activity so that you can dedicate the time that would have been spent eating or in that activity to wholeheartedly seeking the Lord in prayer. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's a good reminder for us. I think it's a challenge for the church in the 21st century to see how the church in the first century was operating. Where would we be today if this in Acts chapter 13 had not happened, if these brothers, this band of brothers was not worshiping the Lord and fasting and praying, we wouldn't have had perhaps the commissioning of Barnabas and Paul. And we are tremendous recipients today of the ministry of the apostle Paul. We'd be hard pressed to disagree with that. We're tremendous beneficiaries. You don't know what God might do in your life or in your family, in this church, in this nation, if we neglect the pursuit of God, which is the greatest and most important of all pursuits in all of life. You might accomplish quite a bit in the course of your life, but if you are not a person who is wholeheartedly seeking after God, 
worshiping him, real worship, fasting and prayer, you could miss what you otherwise would hear from God. I really want to emphasize this because it's super, super important that we understand how this works. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to stand where you're seated. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond specifically to how God is speaking to you. Even if you did it a few weeks ago, I'm going to give you a challenge again to say yes to God. So are you ready? You all buckled up and ready to go? It's good to have people with a business mindset in the church. You need them. Did everybody hear me say the word need? Need means need. And I'm thankful that we have in this church business-minded people who are led by the Spirit of God. Can I get an amen for that? I thank God that we have that. Because without their expertise, without their wisdom, without their insight, we'd be up a creek without a paddle. The challenge that a church always has is this. Helping the people who have a business mindset and a business bent be filled with the Holy Spirit, walk in humility, have the pastors respect that, have the business people respect the shepherding of the pastors while the pastors and the elders walk in humility as well. It's art, not science. There has to be a respect for each other and first and foremost, a respect for the Lord. In your family, the husband might have the 51% card. You know, when you're, you have a split decision, somebody has to make a decision. The buck stops ultimately with the man. We don't have time to go into all of that today, but if you read the Bible, you'll understand that. But if the man is not consulting the wisdom of his wife, then he's foolish because after all, you might be the head, but the woman is the neck. You have to work together in humility. And the way that that happens is when you pray together, when you set apart time to seek the face of Almighty God, when there's true worship, when there's true fasting, when there's true prayer, whether that's in your individual life or whether it's in your family or whether it's within a church. The church is first and foremost a movement of the Spirit of God and all of her ministries need to be structured. All of the appointments in different positions of ministry, different committees, different teams that are set up, every single one of them needs to understand that we exist to facilitate the movement of God. When everybody is on that same page and we understand that we don't care what happens as long as Jesus gets the credit, then the church can move forward. The church can move mountains. We can change what is distasteful and make it tasteful by being salt. We can take the darkness and we can overcome it with the light of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.